the messages that young people are, are getting about what they should and shouldn't be doing this time period, the average age of when things are expected to happen, it's just different. The world in which we're making decisions about what majors to get or whatever the issue. So we just need to throw out the way that we did it as the standard for how it should happen. Hi everyone, this is Denise. As you know, it's summertime and we're taking a little break and sharing some of our most popular episodes from seasons one and two. You might recognize the voice you just heard as Dr. Larry Nelson, the president of the SSEA or the Society for the Studying of Emerging Adults. This is our first repeated episode this summer. We chose this one because we really think it underscores the importance of the topic. If you listened, you might listen again since it's been quite a while. And if you haven't listened, we hope you will. So let's get started. Welcome to the Bite Your Tongue podcast. I'm Denise, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Ellen Broughton. We've been through many years of parenting together, and now we're ready to talk about the ins and outs of parenting adult children. Your diapering days are over. Now it's time to consider when to bite your tongue. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. I'm so thrilled Ellen is joining me today, even though I'm not sure she's quite done with her book. Ellen, you can fill us in. I'm anxious to hear how it's going. Ellen is in Prague today, so fingers crossed all of our sound works. Well, everyone, this is an episode we've been patiently waiting for. You know, when we started this podcast, it was on a whim. We had absolutely no idea that the emerging adult stage of life is actually a stage of life researchers are spending a lot of time on these days. There's actually a group that was formed a few years ago called the Society of the Study of Emerging Adulthood, or SSEA. SSEA is international, and it's an organization that focuses on theory and research relating to emerging adulthood. They estimate the age range to be approximately 18 to 29 years. So Ellen, this certainly confirms our thought that this is quite a timely and important topic. It sure does. And it also goes along with what I said when you told me you had this idea for this podcast, which was brilliant. And I said, there are many experts out there in psychology and I am not one. And you should get someone who's an expert to be talking about this. And we have that today. And I'm so excited to hear what he has to say. I have so much to learn, even though I find that in my clinical work, that adulthood lasts long into the 20s, and that it's the number one problem that I deal with as a clinical psychologist, clinical child psychologist, actually, young adulthood is the biggest issue that I deal with. And it's because we don't have a lot of answers for how to parent young adults. And what's important to think about is that it sets the stage for the rest of adulthood. So if you don't do it great when your child's in their 20s, it's going to be hard then as they get into their 30s, 40s, and beyond, and um, need I say, when they need to take care of us in our old age. <laughs> well, that's why we've got Dr. Nelson with us today. So let's get started. 
Um, today, we welcome Dr. Larry Nelson. He is actually the president of SSEA and a professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He's most interested in the factors that contribute to flourishing and floundering during emerging adulthood. And as parents, frankly, so are we. I could tell you much more about his books. He's authored many. His research, it's extraordinary. But instead, let's welcome Dr. Nelson and ask him to tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself so interested in parenting the emerging adult? Yeah, I'd be happy to do so. I first just need to agree with uh, Ellen. When I started my uh, teaching career, people found out that I uh, study human development, teach human development. I used to get questions about how do I get my child to sleep through the night? How do I get my you know, toddler to quit throwing tantrums? How do I get my teenager to uh, obey curfew? But now 99% of the questions I get is what do I do with my young adult child? So it is, it's, it's a big one. Um, Larry Nelson, I'm a professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah in the United States. Received a PhD in human development from the University of Maryland College Park. Uh, thrilled to be here with you. So can I just jump in with a first question here? Because you mentioned, speaking of young children, you mentioned somewhere that you used to study preschoolers and that you figured out at some point that young adults are really in some ways just big preschoolers. What did you mean by that? And and actually, I should even ask too, like when we're talking about young adults, what age group are we talking about here? Yeah, let me start with the uh, that last question. So I refer to them as emerging adults, and this is the reason why. Uh, when we ask young people, in, especially in their early 20s, do you consider yourself an adult? And we just ask them, do you see yourself as an adult? And they can answer yes, no, or in some ways yes, in some ways no. Between 70 and 80% of 18 to 25-year-olds don't consider themselves adults. And when we ask their parents, the same numbers don't think that they're 18 to 25 year olds or adults yet. So wow. if they don't think they're adults, we can't call them teenagers anymore, obviously. But if by their own uh, acknowledgement, they're not adults, uh, even calling them young adults didn't seem to fit. And so the term emerging adult was coined by a developmental psychologist, Jeff Arnett. And so I like that term. Yeah, my whole doctoral program was focused on studying young children, meaning three to seven-year-olds, social and emotional development. And people would often say, why do you study young children? Uh, teenagers need our help. My response was always, ah, if we can get children off to a good start while they're young, then we can carry them through on a good trajectory through childhood and adolescence. Uh, if we wait until adolescence, it's kind of too late. Well, as I started to study this transition to adulthood and, and emerging adults, which, again, the time period is 18 to 29, and we can discuss that a little bit. But I, I found myself really enjoying studying this, and I asked myself why. And it just dawned on me. I'm like, ah, because... They're just big preschoolers again, meaning just as those early years kind of set the trajectory 
for the school years, childhood and adolescence, what young people do in the third decade of life sets the trajectory for what comes next, positive or negative. And that's why I became so fascinated by the time period and why I consider emerging adults just big preschoolers. That's really interesting. I never thought of it that way. When I read that, I was thinking they were messy with their finger paint still or something. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I didn't think of it as really setting the stage. Because um, I think as parents of young adults or emerging adults, we were hoping that the stage was set. We had no idea that the stage was still being set. And I think that's what you're kind of uncovering. So that's very interesting. Just to get the elephant out of the room here, you're a professor at Brigham Young, and the student body at Brigham Young is 99% members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, and the faculty is about 97%. How has this affected your research, and how do you perceive, or how has it affected your research, and how has it affected how you perceive parenting? Because I know there's lots of traditions and that sort of thing in the church, so how does this affect you, or does it not at all? Sure. So part of of my area of study is understanding the way in which culture influences the transition to adulthood. So I've done work in countries, uh, China, Japan, Italy, India. I go on and on the number of countries that we've done work examining the transition to adulthood in because Culture influences one's uh, values, beliefs, and expected behaviors are what make up one's culture. And when you, any child, teenager, or emerging adult who's going through development is therefore going to be developing within that cultural context. So religion is another cultural context um, that and this is a community that, yes, I, I'm a part of as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I have done some work examining this culture, but I would say of the hundreds of uh, studies I've done, probably only four of them have included participants that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So my work is a broad study of diverse uh, general population in the United States and other countries. So culture, culture interests me. And of course, I think about things through my lens to hopefully benefit members of my own culture and community, but that's not the lens through which I'm studying this issue. You know, culture interests us too. And that we, we have some questions coming up about that because I find that fascinating. Ellen, I think you were going to ask something. I apologize. I interrupted you. No, I, I think what he's saying is right, though. You know, I think you mentioned before that I, I spend a fair amount of time. I also have a visiting professorship in um, Prague at the university here, Charles University. And so I get to work in a lot of ways with European cultures, but even more so because it's so centrally located to this part of the world that I work with lots of students from, you know, the Middle East, especially. And and it's it's interesting how similar this phenomenon is across pretty much any culture that's, that's um, you know, achieved a certain level of economics and industrialization. It, yeah. It's, it's, re- it really is. It's, it's very, very interesting. You know, you, you, 
so a couple of things come to mind. One, you know, Denise mentioned that I'm I'm in the middle of writing a book and I really should be at the end, and um, I'm not yet because it's the, the pandemic has gotten in the way of a lot of the things I'm supposed to be doing. But one of the the premise of my book it's it's called you know centers on bright kids who don't really give a, and you could sort of fill in the blank. We don't really have the right word for that yet. But basically, I think that it is the springboard for a lot of the problems that we see in young adulthood, meaning that kids start, many more kids than before, start to feel like they don't care anymore. They don't want to do the work they have to do. They, you know, there are just lots of things that that can occur. And that's not the focus of today. But I think it um, brings me to a point that you mentioned, which is this idea of self-regulation and parent regulation. And in a lot of ways, what I'm talking about and this other thing that I'm writing and a lot of what I see in my clients that I work with are college students whose parents do everything for them in college and younger kids whose parents are doing so much. And the only way they can tell them to stop is to give up and not really do much of anything. And so I I was curious about what you think about this moving from but you say parent regulation to self-regulation, what does it mean? How does the process occur? I'm even just curious about why you think it's occurring in the first place. Yeah. So let me set the stage for what this period of emerging adulthood affords young people. So the opportunities for good or ill that it affords young people as they enter the third decade of life and start that process of transitioning to adulthood. So in the past, the late teens and the early 20s signified a time where a lot of objective markers of adulthood, if I can put it that way, would take place. So in other words, for for a long time, you married, you uh, became parents, you started a career, you uh, entered the military. Some identifiable transition occurred, usually by the early 20s. Well, that is no longer the case. Marriage now among industrialized nations is on average age 30 for women, 32 for men. We know that the amount of education required to get a job for self-reliance, it takes longer. It takes more education. It takes longer. So there's just this extended period of singleness and not yet financially independent. All right, so why is that now a concern or why are parents now so important in this? Well, there's a biological component. We know that the brain uh, isn't fully developed until on average the mid-20s. So if you picture this combination now that we are telling 18-year-olds Here, you have all this autonomy to make decisions for yourself, but there's no structure for them anymore. They move from a time period as children and adolescents to where their entire day has some structure. School, coaches, employers, to now there's autonomy to spend their time how they want and with whom they want. So again, autonomy, lack of structure, and a brain that isn't fully developed. So is it any wonder that we see 
the early 20s as the peak period in the entire lifespan for any number of problematic behaviors. It's the peak period for uh, risky substance uh, experimentation and use. It's the peak period for uh, arrests. It's the peak period for being a victim of a violent crime. It's the age period where we see high levels of onset of depression, anxiety, self-harm, eating disorders, because it's just this time period that's really challenging because there's now autonomy coupled with lack of support and not a fully developed brain. And therefore, parents become important because they're one of the last sources of support and structure that can be available during a time period that's challenging. But how involved should parents be? You know, this is sort of a catch-22 to me. And I understand the whole, you know, change over time and history and uh, marriage being later and all of that. I wonder also if it's some of it is kids graduate high school. I think parents have been really involved, those parents that have been really involved. Kids go to college. I'm not sure the majority of them know why they're going to college other than they need to go to college. I think it's actually hard to know what you want to study when you're 18 years old. And college also has become kind of a a fun time. There's been more freedom given to college students. Now, if you don't attend class, it's not the end of the world. You just have to get the notes from someone else, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, And then suddenly you've graduated and you're not sure what you're doing. You say they need to be supportive in those early 20s because that's the reckless time. But at what point do these kids have to stand up on their own two feet and start taking responsibility for their behaviors and actions? Oh, absolutely. It's the time period to do that. Here's my concern. So my research has focused on the role of parents, including helicopter parenting. I need to place the comments that I'm going to make next in the context of my work on helicopter parenting is extensive. Uh, I'll I'll just put it that way. It's extensive. I, I know the dangers and I know the ills of doing for your emerging adult children, what they developmentally can and should be doing for themselves. That's my definition of over-parental involvement, is when a parent is doing something for their child that the child developmentally can and should be doing for themselves. Okay, so with that important caveat, I need to make it clear that the other extreme is has also been found to be detrimental. The other extreme being parents who do nothing to support. And again, listen to my language, not do for their children what they can and should be doing for themselves. That's inappropriate. But they're not providing any support um, whatsoever. Those young people struggle as well. Because the issue that I have with how we often look at the role of parents in the transition to adulthood is I think this is one of the only transitions in the life of a child that we use an age rather than a skill to determine our involvement. What do I mean by this? We would never, I don't think, I think the majority of parents would never have a child on her fourth birthday say, hey, you're four now. 
So good luck with going out and learning how to ride a bike. We don't do it by age. We do it by the skill. We, we take that child. We start off with some training wheels. Then we take those training wheels off. We hold and stabilize the back of the bike till they get going. And then we have to let go of the back of the bike or they'll never learn how. But we don't say to a four-year-old, hey, good luck with that. We don't say to an 18-month-old, uh, hey, good luck with that talking thing. Handle it on your own. We don't hand, say to uh, an 11-year-old hitting puberty, hey, you're 11 now. Good luck with that whole puberty and learning about sex thing. We take the skill that is needed to be developed and we model, we teach, we support, and then we let go of the back of the bike. So it just is odd to me that we take the magical age of 18 and say, you're 18, go for it. You're on your own. As opposed to what are the skills that are needed in the transition and turning much more of it over to the child. They need to start doing that, but still, whether it's if it's in the area of finances, uh, teaching those skills, which hopefully you've started to do much before age 18, but you're continuing the study skills that may be needed. What, what support and assistance can I provide? I'm not going to do the homework for my college student. I'm not going to talk to their professors. But if my child comes to me, and here's that's the difference between parent regulation and self-regulation. If a child comes to a parent and says, can I bounce some ideas off you? I've taken these three classes and um, I'm really starting to think this is an area that may interest me. Am I missing anything that I should be considering? Do you see who's driving this? It's the child. But that parent is there because they've been asked, able to provide some support. Have you thought about this? Have you gone and talked to an advisor, given some advice that the child can then use and then go and use their autonomy, accept that responsibility. I don't know why we just, this magical age of 18, that we think the role of a parent is done. Oh, Oh, go ahead, Ellen. Oh, no, I didn't want to interrupt, but I think I might ask what you're going to ask, Denise. I'll be curious if this is the case. Because the thing that I know I want to ask, and anybody who's listening would want to ask, well, why did it work so well for us then? And our generation was basically told, you're out of the house at 18, like you're joining the military, you're going, and it worked. Now, I have some ideas about this. I don't know if they're right, but I, I think it'd be, I, I'm interested in hearing why why you think it's so different from now that I think we had the, the structure, you know, you talked about structure. A lot of us got married right after college that provided some sort of structure. And two, two people are problem solving things in, uh, instead of one. But also, I think we had a lot of skills that we we developed in jobs. Most of us had part-time jobs or babysat or did all sorts of things to help around the house that developed some of those. But but I'm curious if that was, if you have ideas about that. And was that what you were going to ask, Denise, or are you going to no, take it? No, I'm going to ask a totally different question, but let's answer that first. Yeah. So I do, I do have a partially tongue-in-cheek comment to that, and that is oh, twofold. Number one, I always hear those of us who are adults, saying that it worked. And what do we mean by it worked, though? We watched divorce rates skyrocket. We watched a lot of unfulfilled lives um, for, for a lot of adults, um, especially for many years, women 
felt trapped in those situations. Um, so we need to be careful about what we mean by it worked. But second, my tongue in cheek is at that time, because we entered situations where there was structure, we kind of took two individuals with half a brain and between the two people, <laughs> there was hopefully one functioning brain. And that's partially tongue in cheek. But again, there was structure. There was a spouse. There was a a full-time employer that expected you to be there. Uh, if you were in the military, there was this structure. It wasn't an entering a world of almost complete autonomy to do what they want when they want. So I hope that explains a little bit. I love that answer. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I need to go back to my other thing, but I want to respond to this. And isn't it true that the male brain takes a little longer to fully develop than the female brain? That's what I've read. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at every stage of life. Okay. Yeah. So Ellen and I have said, we just want our son to get a girlfriend early so she can set him on the right track. So that's the two, that's the two brains working together. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, what I really wanted to ask, though, when you were talking about, you know, the little kid on the bike and letting go and what the kid can do and what the parent needs to support them and the 18-month-old, I think it gets harder. I don't think college is the harder time. I think when they graduate college, our expectations get greater for them to stand on their own two feet. And as a parent, you have to be pretty amazingly insightful to know what they're capable of at that point and what they're not, when you should step in and when you should not. And so I think that's a real balance of, you know, it's funny, I read something about mothers who tend to do more for their sons because, and again, it might be the brain development, they don't feel they're as capable as their daughters. And again, that's this is very sexist where they'll say, did you make your dentist appointment to the 22-year-old? Or have you followed up on this interview? You know, that sort of thing. So I can't figure out as a parent of a young adult, and my kids are past this now, but how do we identify when we can let go of that bike? It's very easy when they're four. It's very easy when they're 18 months. It's not so easy when they're 22. Right. And yet... I don't want my four-year-old to fall off a bike and skin her knee. That's not my desire, but it may happen as part of the learning process. The challenge with what we're talking about now with an 18-year-old, with a 21-year-old, with a 24-year-old is the ramifications of falling off the adult bike are so much larger, right? Their arrest records, their, their unemployment, their addictions, the, the ramifications of not succeeding with the skills that we're talking about are just huge. So I understand those parents who want to hang on a little bit longer, because I think for many, it may come from a good place. For others, it's all about control, and that's never a good thing. So as parents of emerging adults, and, and I am there, I do have emerging adult children. Deep breath. Deep breath. But it comes down to, because that balance is so important that you mentioned, it comes down to, we need to have a relationship with our children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That relationship is key because we do need to know. When I talk to parents, I say the first thing that you need to do is have a relationship with your child. Second, throw everything that you did out the window. Because I hear, I hear 
parents say it all the time. Well, when I went to college, I did this, this, and this, and it worked for me. It's a different time period. The messages that young people are, are getting about what they should and shouldn't be doing this time period, the average age of when things are expected to happen, it's just it's just different. The world in which we're making decisions about what majors to get or whatever the issue. So we just need to throw out the way that we did it as the standard for how it should happen. The third thing I tell them is throw out the window what you did for that child's older siblings. And what I'm getting at with that is if we say, well, hey, this worked for your big brother, so it's going to work for you. We're missing the opportunity to see every one of our children as an individual. Each child has different needs. Each child has different strengths. Each child has a different personality. And so we need to approach each child uniquely. And how do we know those needs and those strengths, and the support that they need? That happens by having a relationship with them. Again, that's not doing things for them. That's having a healthy, strong parent-child relationship with them. And if you know that, then you can kind of sense where the needs are. So let me uh, introduce into our discussion the notion of parents. Are we fostering our children, gaining that responsibility, or are we hindering it? Let me take the same an example of the same scenario that could be either fostering or delaying or hindering, facilitating or hindering. Let's say a child living at home. Okay. One child could be living at home in your basement and spending all day sleeping, playing video games, binging Netflix. There is nothing about that that is leading to accepting responsibility, transitioning to adulthood, developing any of the skills that we want. And so if you're facilitating that, you are hindering their development. But you can take the very same scenario of a child living at your home who may be doing that so as to be able to take more credits, finish a a school to move on, or so that they can do an internship in your community so close by, or whatever it is. But do you you feel that difference? They are using that support that you've provided, a bed in your home, but they are using it as a springboard to responsibility. They are moving forward. You are fostering their development. Same scenario, child living in your home. But in one way, you may be hindering their progress, but in another way, facilitating their taking on responsibility. I have to say, did you do you know both Denise and my kids? Because we needed to hear this. <laughs> From right, Denise, am I right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like we have, our, of course, because we have our kids are all different. And what we learned with one, we can't, we cannot apply to another. And so the only way we know what they need is that relationship. But I want to know what you, I hear this a lot. 
And parents are scared to sort of take charge sometimes when the kid's in the basement playing video games and watching Netflix. Mom's still doing the wash. Mom's still, and and it's usually mom, still making the meals. What can the parent do to gently, that means, you know, keep the relationship intact, but gently move them to flourishing rather than floundering? Yeah. So if we take... Those of us who study parenting and, and work with parents understand that we probably group every everything we need to know into three areas of parenting. One is the amount of love. I'll put it that way. Uh, warmth, support, we'll just call it love. The other is control. I don't like that word. Within this, it would be rules, expectations, boundaries. And then the third uh, thing that parents need to do is they need to grant autonomy, freedom to make a choice to their kids. Okay, when children are very young, the love is absolutely essential. The control is going to be high because a child, let's take a two-year-old, does not have the cognitive, language, social, or emotional skills yet to make wise decisions. So parents are going to be very involved with a lot of rules, boundaries, and expectations. However, autonomy granting, giving freedom to make choices, still needs to be there because that's how they learn to make choices. And so, for example, with very young children, you may have a rule of at dinner, we eat vegetables. No discussion. We eat vegetables at dinner. But then for them to learn to start making choices... Um, you may say, so what vegetable would you like? So there the, the expectation of a healthy meal is met, but the ch- child gets to choose. You may have bedtime. Listen, at your age, bedtime is this time. No argument. It's time for bed. Okay. And, and there are reasons for that. Health, and, you know, all of those issues. But then you say, I want to start giving you some choices. So what pajamas would you like to wear? What book would you like it read? And who would you like to uh, tuck you in? Okay, so there's some choice. Now, the older kids get, as they develop emotional, cognitive, language, and social skills, parents start allowing more autonomy to choose within those skills. And so the older you kids get, the levels of control, rules, boundaries, expectations are declining while autonomy granting is going up. And here's the thing, love and warmth and support remain the same. They look different with a two-year-old. It may be cuddling, hugs, all those with a, with a teenager. It may be waiting up and listening to them tell you about uh, their date. And with the, uh, young adults, emerging adults, it's that listening ear, that soundboard when they want to talk through a problem that they're experiencing, just listening to them. Sorry, that was a long preface to your (laughs) question, but so if you have a child who is not exhibiting the the skills that are needed, this is a time where some expectations need to be put back in place. Listen, you have to meet these expectations, and and so that may be you're going to live in our house, your laundry, uh, you need to be out of the house seeking employment or something. So there are some expectations. Do you hear how that's different? You don't even need to do that as a parent if the child is already, is only, quote unquote, only living at your home. 
as a way so because they do have the job and they're wanting to take more credits to finish. And so you don't need to put more boundaries and expectations and rules in place because they're they're on their way. But if the child isn't, guess what? It's time to start putting more of those in place. And, and that becomes through. much harder as they get older, I think. It, it does. I'm, I'm going to switch here, too, because this brings me into these um, the ethnic backgrounds. Um, I was very close to a young Hispanic girl who I mentored for many years who came from a first-generation family. She was the very first to graduate high school in her extended family. Her parents had her when they were 15. They were probably one of the most loving families I ever worked with. The parents went on to have three additional children. The parents were highly engaged, but there really were no expectations set for these children to move out of the house or be independent. So the young girl I mentored is probably about 25 or 26 now. Then she's got two other sisters in her in their 20s and then a, a young son probably in middle school. I felt like this was a cultural thing with them. And I'd love to hear the different ethnic backgrounds you've examined, some of the findings, and what you see working and not working in certain scenarios. What can we learn from some of these other cultures and scenarios and how it would apply to many of us? Yeah, Uh, good question. So one culture that's pretty fascinating um, is the Italian culture. In Italy, it's quite normal for emerging adults throughout the third decade of life to live at home, especially men. In fact, they've been, uh, there's been a name um, given to this hotel families. It's just so common for young people to do this. And so the transition to adulthood is occurring within the family. Too often we think about gaining responsibility and taking on adult roles in many Western individual focused uh, cultures as transitioning away from the family. But I think a really important way is if the culture that you mentioned, uh, Hispanic cultures, uh, Italy, and other cultures, they're a little more what we call collectivistic, meaning group and family focused, is they view the transition as a family responsibility helping each individual become a responsible adult is the responsibility of the family to contribute and to help. So it's not a transition away from the family. It's a transition to adulthood within the support of a family. And I think that's, that's just a uh, important way to look at it. Um, but it comes back to the same principles, even within uh, cultures such as Italy or other similar cultures. We see that if parents are over controlling, ah, voila, guess what? All of the negative outcomes that we see for children with over controlling parents emerge again. So it's about the relationship. It's about appropriate levels of support. It's about, again, that warmth, that is really helpful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to, I, I keep talking about this lack of support on one end of the continuum and over control or over involvement on the other. 
we did a study looking at how much financial support parents gave to their college students. And that's only one way to give support. There's emotional support. There's giving assets like that old beater car that you've had forever, but just financial support to um, students. And one group of students have parents paying for everything, housing, tuition, books, and fun money, uh, groceries, everything. That group was doing the worst. That group, because the kids had no skin in the game. Mm-hmm. They had no investment in their own college education. And so they weren't engaged in school. They were, uh, they were engaged in the highest levels of risk behaviors. So drugs, alcohol, unprotected sex, all these negative outcomes. They were doing terribly. But the other group that was doing uh, poorly was the group who had no support financially. So we know our work and others show that those who have no support whatsoever financially, they have the highest dropout rate. And if they do graduate, they have the lowest starting salaries because they may have a college diploma, but they haven't built a resume. They didn't have time to do internships, work with professors, be engaged in campus activities and leadership opportunities. So when they apply for a job, an employer is looking at Two individuals with degrees, but the resumes aren't equal at all. And so, so parents may say, you're on your own because that's how you're going to develop all these things. But in the end, not giving any support or what I refer to as trans, uh, transferring resources actually sets them up to fail. So once again, either end, and again, I'm sorry, I go off these tangents to be able to answer your questions. We see... In cultures that value family involvement, that's okay. Support, encouragement, warmth, that is not the same as doing for your child what they can and should be doing on their own. So can I just say how much I love what you've really, at the essence of what you're talking about, which is really relationships and love. Yeah. And if we can kind of frame a lot of our decisions and a lot of the anxiety that we have in those terms, I think it would be so helpful for so many of us. Now, I know we're almost out of time. So Denise, stop me if this is not. No, a no, good- no. Go ahead. Because I've got a couple other questions I really want to get addressed. And I don't mind the tangents. So go ahead. <laughs> well, one of the things you've touched on, even in, just in these last few questions, is this idea of college. And I do feel like this is a big source of difficulty with, with young adults. And I have changed my viewpoint completely from I will help any child get into college, not help them in terms of, you know, like paying somebody, but, you know, even as someone who's who helps children with learning disabilities to help them find the right accommodations, the right kind of tutors, you know, exactly what they need in order to be able to do that if they want to. And now I'm realizing that that's a, a big pressure for a lot of families. And I see it in families of kids who aren't making it in college. And that's a really bad launch into the 20s when parents have put so much emphasis on that. And then there's not a whole lot else to do in some ways. Or or families often come to me thinking there's nothing left for him or her because they're not in college. What do you think about that? Does this play a, a role in any of these decisions? Yeah. 
once again, just as with my comment about looking at age 18 as the important age to start doing things, it's about skills, developing the skills Mm -hmm. to be a successful adult. So likewise, how we think about college, we should be taking the same mindset. Every college degree is not equal. We need to be thinking about what are the outcomes that we want and what is the fit, the perfect fit for our child. And there's not just one perfect fit, but a good fit for a child to reach this. What are the skills? We want our child to be able to be financially independent. And if this child going to college, they're not going to make it, that's not helping them reach that goal. So if a different route, a trade, it's scary, entrepreneurship, you know, something, but if that's the fit for that child to reach our goal, our goal isn't a college diploma. Our goal is the child being financially independent. And happy. Now let's... and so, and, and I was just going to go on to some of the other ones. We want them to be able to do well in relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what are the skills that we're teaching and conveying and helping our children to be able to achieve that goal? Instead of being focused on the age that is right or wrong to marry and trying to apply that to everybody, instead it's what are the skills to help my child have successful romantic relationships? What are the skills to help my child not only get a job, but be able to maintain a job because of the social and emotional skills that they have to do well in the workplace? Okay. I want my child to be able to be emotionally healthy. And so with this child, it may be helping them cope with um, anxiety, depression with another child, it's helping cope with trauma in their life or whatever, but it's the end. The goal is to be emotionally healthy. And then we add happiness to that. And the way that we start thinking about this is it's back to one of the earlier questions was about, or I think it was comment Ellen made just about in her clinical work of seeing now individuals in their thirties and forties, because I'm often asked, well, isn't it okay that they just spend their 20s playing and exploring? (laughs) And my concern is if they're spending 10 to 12 years of their life, think about this, hitting age 30, having spent 10 to 12 years of their life focused only, only on having fun, lack of responsibility. I'm just asking us to tweak it and have us think about outcomes that will help a 30-year-old be on a trajectory, back to my preschoolers, a positive trajectory for the rest of their lives. And so that's about the skills of financial independence, emotional well-being, being able to succeed in relationships. So if we quit getting caught up into the only way to succeed is a one-size-fits-all approach, meaning when one should marry, a college diploma, et cetera, et cetera, and focus on what skills Am I helping my child will acquire so that they're on this healthy trajectory in many areas of their lives, financial, relationship, social, emotional, physical health, financial, as they hit their 30s. So the 30s become about thriving as opposed to 
having to renovate <laughs> your life already at age 30. That, that was really beautiful. I, I want to make one comment, and then I want him to address one more question, Ellen, and then we'll get to our closing, okay, real quick here. When we were talking about the ethnic backgrounds, and you were talking about the Italians, and um, we were talking about the Hispanics, and I've worked with a lot of Chinese families too, and they all live together in that collective environment that you talked about. I really started thinking about COVID and how so many kids came back home. I felt there was a little bit of positive going on in that. The families were, everyone was working. Typically, I'm, I'm talking about kids that have already um, flourished. Everyone was working, but everyone was together. And there was a little bit of warmth that I felt developed in a lot of families during that period. I just wanted to sort of make that observation. Now I just want to ask you, in your book, Flourishing in Emerging Adulthood, Positive Developments During the Third Decade of Life, you identify key traits of kids who flourish and those who flounder. What ages are those traits identified and how can parents look for things that might look like floundering? Yeah, good question. I just want to echo what you said, but add one thing. I think COVID took those families who have this uh, focus on relationships. And I think it became a time that really strengthened and brought them back. And that became a good thing. Yeah, I thought so and Those too. for whom it wasn't, it exacerbated the bad. Isn't I think it just, yeah. I think it just underscored everything that we're talking about. Um, healthy relationships are what we're after and the rest kind of sort itself out. And indeed not answer your question. Some of the things that we see of those who are flourishing, guess what? First and foremost, they have a positive relationships with their parents. Yep, there it is. There it is. There it is. Second, uh, they're doing. Um, they have a. They have a sense of their identity, so they're making progress in their identity. Mean who they feel they are in regard to work and careers, in regard to who they think would be the type of person they would want to be in a romantic, uh, committed romantic relationship with their values and beliefs. And so they're, they're making progress. Maybe they don't know yet, but they're actively exploring as opposed to those who are floundering or those who are just using this time period to live in the moment. So for example, there's a great study out there done that asks young people what they feel they should do during this time period, because they'll never get to do it uh, in the future. And the first six things on the list are things like party, travel, um, explore sexually, enjoy not having a full-time job. I mean, listen to these responses yeah. that they feel they should be doing. If you're doing that for 10 to 12 years, how do you develop the things that we're talking about, responsibility skills? But those who are flourishing, they actually combine the fun of this time period. And it's a great time period. They should enjoy it. They should take advantage of it, but they do what they do in regard to fun and travel and friends, but they do it with an eye towards the future. Yeah. That makes they, perfect they believe at the same time that they're planning a trip somewhere. They also recognize I need to couple that with, some service, a volunteer experience. I need to learn how to manage. So they do what they do one foot in this time period, but one foot as it were already 
in the next, meaning they've got an eye towards it. And that's the balance between those who are, for those who are flourishing and those who are floundering are living only for the present. And that present will one day be age 30 and they will be no closer to uh, having arrived to where they need to be as adults than they were when they hit the 20s because they didn't do anything in the 20s. But those who love their 20s, but with an eye towards the 30s and have the support of loving parents, not to do things for them, but to help them with that skill development as needed are the ones who will be thriving in the next stage of life. That, that was terrific. You know, Ellen, what do you think? Usually uh, we ask our guests to give us a wrap-up statement or three suggestions for parents, but I sort of feel like he just did that. What do you think, Ellen? I do too. And I do think that we've got to think relationship, relationship, relationship. relationship. Yeah. And, and we don't tend to do that. We don't tend to put that first. We, we have our tasks as parents that we want our kids to accomplish or our list of musts. And that's not always their list. And it's not part of a good relationship either. That's exactly right. Well, we're going to wrap up. And um, Dr. Nelson, we can't thank you enough for joining us. You know, I just reached out to one of your associates on a fluke when I read some things in the Washington Post. And we're so honored that you took the time to respond and that you joined us today because I hope that this will help our listeners understand this stage of life a little more and all of us recognize how important it is and how the relationships we start early keep going as our kids become young adults. It was a delight. Thank you for having me. If there's ever another opportunity that you'd have me back, I'd be happy to do so. It's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you. We'd love that. Well, we hope you all enjoyed listening to Dr. Nelson as much as we did. A lot of eye-opening information about this stage of life. You know, again, when we started this podcast, we had no idea that this stage of life was so important. We're so anxious to hear what all of you think. Please let us know on our website or even through email at biteyourtonguepodcast at gmail.com. And I can't believe that we've just wrapped episode 10. I'd never thought we'd make it through episode two. It's because of you and we can't thank you enough. There's a lot more coming up. We think you will absolutely love the next episode that drops in two weeks. We actually speak to two young adults. We will get the inside scoop on how they feel when they consider themselves adult or not, and a lot more. Again, please check out our website at biteyourtonguepodcast.com and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you again to Connie Fisher for editing. We couldn't do it without her. And remember, as Dr. Nelson says, our relationships with our adult children continue to really matter a lot. So sometimes you just have to bite your tongue.